All right, I want to welcome everybody here this morning again. Uh, we are gathered in the presence of God, and we are about to get a chance to hear from the living God. We have an opportunity to hear, to hear God address us. And if you haven't been in, 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 at Grace Community Church in recent weeks, if this is your first time, we're right in the middle of a series, uh, several week-long series, on the disciplines of the Christian life. And last week we looked at the command in 2 Timothy chapter 3, to continue on in the scriptures. And we talked about the danger of divorcing our relationship with Jesus from our relationship to the written word of God. And today we're going to press into this theme further. Uh, we're going to hit it from a different angle. And, and we're visiting this because of how foundational it is. It touches everything else in our, in our walk with God. So this is where we're headed and this week is no different than any week. We need God's help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Or I can't preach God's words effectively to you, or you can't hear it and it do anything in your life. Some of you right now have no intentions of being impacted by the Word of God. But you know what? The rest of us in this room, we can call on our sovereign God and He can overwhelm you with His glory in the next hour. And that's what we want to pray for that God would, would reveal His glory to us from His Word, that He would visit the preaching of His Word this morning. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, we come to You, God, and we, we confess our, our neediness and our weakness to You this morning, Lord. Apart from You, we have nothing good, God. You, you are our, our, our only good in this world. We have no good apart from You. Lord, apart from Your work of grace in us, Lord, we have desires to do what is right, but no ability to carry it out. Lord, we are weak. We are weak. We are weak people apart from You. But You say in Your Word, Lord, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we claim Your promise today, Lord Jesus, that in our weakness, God, we just ask You, Lord, to draw near to us this morning and to magnify Your strength and Your power and God, I ask for that for myself, Lord, that you would allow me to teach your word and the ability that you supply, Lord. Come stand by me and strengthen me, Lord, that your message might be fully proclaimed and that all would hear. God, come stand by us this morning, Lord Jesus, and feed us. Lord, feed us, feed our souls this morning. God, we ask that you would, would, would visit the preaching of your word with power that your word would go forth with Holy Spirit power this morning. And God, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would break down stony hearts this morning with your powerful word. Your word is a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Lord, stand by your word and prove it to be so this morning. You say it's a fire and we believe it, Lord. God, we ask that you would use your word this morning to ignite passion for your name, Lord Jesus. God, come visit us, Lord. If, if we don't hear from you today, we meet together in vain, Lord. Come speak to us from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our text today is going to be in Romans 15. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 15. If you don't have a study guide this morning, you can throw up a hand and one or two helpers can, can help get some extras uh, to the back. Uh, if you see some extras around, just throw them up and get the extras to the back with the hands up. Turn to Romans chapter 15 if you have your Bibles. We're going to read one verse of Scripture, 
And this is, this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking this morning. And we're going to read Romans 15, verse 4. And I've titled the message today, The Bible Can Blast Away Discouragement. And we're going to look at that from Romans 15, 4 this morning. Let's read it together. This is the living and breathing Word of God. I want you to hear it as such. I'm going to read it. But I want you to hear God addressing you this morning from this text. Romans 15, 4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's what we're going to press into this morning. Now, I laid, I laid this out last week that we have a new year ahead of us. We turn the corner into the new year. And what we're doing in these next several weeks on the spiritual disciplines is I want to stand in front of you and I want to encourage you with this new year that's out in front of you that you would live for the Lord Jesus. You say, what do you mean? I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. I long for this in this church, and I long for this in your life. I burn with jealousy in my own life and in your life when I hear stories about massive chunks of time in believers' life being given over to wasted time and not using it for the glory of God. And I want to encourage you that you would make the most of, of, of the time that you have left on this planet. Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses teaches us to pray. Teach us to number our days. That's his prayer to God. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you, Lord, a heart of wisdom. And what that's a prayer for is that we would live a calculated life in this world, on this planet, that we would live in such a way right now that makes sense in a thousand years. God can help us to do that. We can live for the one who died for us and the one who was raised from the dead. There's a famous poem by a missionary named C.T. Studd. You just shake your head if you've heard this. He says, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ." Will last, And then he says, And when I have died, how glad I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Does that voice some kind of prayer in your heart that you have life and breath and a heartbeat for Jesus to, to lay it all down in service for Jesus? And we talked about this last week that every believer, part of the new nature, at some level in you, you connect with words like that and you say, Yes, Lord. I want to live for you. I, I want to live for your glory. Every believer has some layer of that. And then we talked last week about, but it's not that simple. Okay, We have hindrances in our way, obstacles that we must overcome if we are going to live for Jesus Christ. And last week, off of Proverbs 13, 4, I reminded you that one hindrance in your life is laziness. Laziness, a lack of personal discipline. And that verse says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. And I warned you last week that there is this, this laziness toward the scriptures that will cause you to waste massive amounts of your life. 
And last week, we, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and it pressed on us. It, it confronted us with an imperative in, in God's Word, a demand, an authoritative demand from King Jesus that we are to continue on in what has been written in the Bible. And it confronted us in our laziness. And that is a biblical thing. Okay, in, in the midst of a fluffy, nominal church culture, that is a biblical thing that we need to learn. Rebuke is biblical. When we are in sin, we need to be, to be confronted in our sin. Okay? And that's very rare in the culture that we live in. But it's not the only hindrance that you face. Okay? And that's the danger. I want to encourage every disciple maker in this room. You cannot be one-dimensional in the way that you deal with people. Okay? There is issues in people's life when they are being lazy towards what God has demanded them to do. And they need to be confronted for it. But there's other things at play. And, and, and one of the things that we're going to look at this morning that we need to learn how to deal with is this obstacle of discouragement. Of discouragement. And we need to be the types of disciples of Jesus that can not only rebuke for laziness, but also encourage our brothers and sisters to lift their hand, to strengthen their hand in God, to lift their face to the heavens. And so this is what we're going to press into today. Last week was a hard message. It was a hard message. There are hard words in Scripture. okay? And, and there was a prayer that George Whitfield used to pray. He says, I do not want to be a velvet-mouthed preacher. He despised the thought of falling into a pattern of his life where he refused to confront people in their sin. And the false prophets in, in the book of Jeremiah, do you know how they're described? It says, they heal the wound of God's people lightly. And you know what they say? Peace, peace. When there is no peace. That's a false prophet in our day. One that soft mouths sin in the body of Christ and, and reaches over and instead of a loving rebuke to a brother and sister that's walking in laziness, the, the, the true servant of God will confront in love. And they will not say peace, peace when there is no peace. But there's another dynamic at play. Okay, That's what we're looking at this morning. We need to be... Prophets like Jeremiah, but we also need to be like Isaiah in Isaiah 40 where God turns the corner and he says, comfort my people. Tell her her warfare is ended. And we need to be able to encourage our brothers and sisters. And so this is where we're going today. We're looking at the same thing, our personal relationship with God's word, but we're coming at it from a different angle. We're going to come at it with a mindset to battle discouragement. And the first heading on your study guide this morning is just that. Is that this battle of discouragement, it's a real thing. It is real. And I want that to be highlighted as you leave this place. This is not a theoretical thing. This is a real thing. This is a real battle. And what do I mean when I say discouragement? This battle with discouragement is real. What I mean when I say discouragement is a broad range of things. I mean in an umbrella way. Everything that falls short of rejoicing in Jesus Christ, I'm calling it this morning discouragement. Everything that falls short of you being joyful in Jesus, I'm calling it discouragement. This is a broad range of sad, low, or even neutral feelings. Broad range of this. Anything falling short of joy in Jesus, various levels of unhappiness in your life. I'm going to call that discouragement. And the question is, is that sin? 
is that sin, when, that, when you're confronted with, the, with these emotions in your life, anything that falls short of joy in Jesus, is it sin? And the first thing that we have to say is when that stuff first hits us, the initial shockwave where my soul is downcast and, I, and I'm not rejoicing in Christ and I'm disoriented, that initial thrust is not sin. And we know that because Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, He says this in Mark chapter 14, verse 34. He says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Even to death. Jesus never sinned. And that first thrust, when that discouragement hits you, is not sin. But what is sin is you refusing to make war on that discouragement. That is sin. And when you roll over and take it, instead of making war against it, that is sin in God's Word. Which is why the next thing that Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane is He hits His face in anguish. And He begins to make war and, and call out to God in prayer that He would submit His will to the Father. So the initial thrust is not sin. But if you refuse to fight it in your life, it is sin. And now let's talk about but how dangerous is it. Okay? Are we talking about just a little house cat that will scratch you? Are we talking about a roaring lion that will devour you, that will overtake you? How dangerous is discouragement? It changes the way that you, that you attack it. It changes the urgency with which you respond to it when it hits you. If you have this biblical view of how dangerous it is. So I want to talk to you about this. We need to be warned today. That discouragement, it absolutely will. It will spiritually paralyze you. You will have desires to do and to live for Christ, but it will paralyze you. It will keep you discouragement, spiritual, spiritual discouragement. It will keep you from pressing in and drawing near to God. It will keep you from living for Christ in this world, and it will keep you from pursuing the mission of Jesus in your life before you know it. Before you know it, you can give days, weeks, months, and years to this enemy, this devouring line called discouragement. And you can waste massive amounts of the life that God has given you, and they pass away. Instead of using them for Christ, you're discouraged. You're discouraged. And we're going to talk more about that. The root of that is unbelief. The root of that discouragement is unbelief. It is a dangerous thing. And it can devastate your walk with Christ. I want you to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 4. And I want to show you an example of this to sober you up when you feel sad, low feelings of the sense of urgency that you need to feel right behind that to make war on this and fight for joy in Jesus. Exodus chapter 4. I believe this is the verse that Shane referenced earlier in his prayer. Exodus 4, 30 and 31 says this. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So this is this group. The people of God, they believed God's Word and they worshipped God. That's chapter 4. What happens in chapter 5? Very next chapter of the book of Exodus, their enemy, Pharaoh, he begins to attack the people of God. And he begins to, 
to throw down regulations and make things very difficult for them in chapter 5. And the next glimpse we get of them in chapter 6 is discouragement. Discouragement has landed on the people of God. And what has it done? What has it done? Exodus 6, verse 9. Listen to this. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Do you know that that downcast spirit that you carry around, that broken spirit, <clears throat> do you know, left, left un, unward against in your life, that it can keep you from believing the Word of God? That the Word of God comes to you. And not even two chapters before you believed it and worshipped God. But because of this discouragement, <coughs> it is not landed on you. Do you fear it in that way? Do you see it as that dangerous in your life that it can move you into a place where you're numb to the voice of the Holy Spirit? This is discouragement. People who believe God's Word now reject God's Word because they are discouraged. Do you know that can happen to your brothers and sisters around you? That's why we got to have more in the arsenal than get up and go. The Bible says get up and go. Stop being lazy. Get up and go. You need to encourage them. And you need to be asking God the Holy Spirit to open eyes. To open eyes and to dislodge this enemy in people's life. We need to remember today. Okay, Every single one of us are going to face this enemy. If you ask any Christian in this room and you say, have you ever been discouraged? Has discouragement ever hit you? That is, that is like you asking a Christian, have you ever breathed oxygen in this world? Are you a human being? Okay? And there's some kind of folks, and, and they talk about, you know, like their, their walk with God is green beret, start to finish. That they do nothing but just take it to the enemy and, and walk all over sin. But the truth is, is that we all battle. Okay? There are seasons in our life where we will face discouragement. We will face this enemy. Yes, at, at different degrees. Okay? We will not all face it in the same way. There will be different degrees of it. And yes, there will be varying frequencies of it. We're not going to all face it in, at, at the same consistency, but we will all face it. I want you to know that. Even King David in Scripture, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, he's called a man after God's own heart. And that's a beautiful description, right? That what if God said that about you? That man, they are, that, that woman or that man is after my very heart. Okay, this is a beautiful description of the insides of this man and his love for the Lord. But even King David, he needed his spirit revived at times. He needed his hand strengthened in the Lord. He needed his countenance lifted in the Lord. And in Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. In that Psalm, in verse 3, one of the things that the, the Lord our shepherd does in, in verse 3 is it says he restores my soul. And that's what King David wrote. A man after God's own heart needed his soul restored. How much more do me and you need it? We're going to have times where we need to strengthen our hand, where we need our countenance lifted and our souls restored. There's a famous book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression. And here's a quote from the book. He says, The greatest need of the hour is a revived and a joyful church. The greatest need of the hour is a revived and a joyful church. And I want, as your brother in Christ, I want to say amen to that. 
And I want to look across Grace Community Church and I want us to be a joyful people in Jesus. That you catch, not happy clappy, not everything's, you know, great and I have no problems in life, but in the midst of everything that comes my way, I have unshakable joy in Jesus Christ. My God is for me. I want us to be a people that are triumphantly encouraged in Christ. Amen? Amen. Do you want that for your brothers and sisters? Or do you want massive chunks of time in their life to be given over to, to discouragement? Where they're, not, where they're not walking in what God has provided for them. So this is what we're going for. And I hope I pumped you up this morning to fight this enemy. That it can grab you. That it is dangerous. And that you will fight it. I hope you're fired up about fighting it. And the next question is what? So how do we do that? So how do we do that? How do we meet that enemy when it, when it comes our way? And Romans 15 verse 4 tells us exactly how to do it. And that's where we're headed this morning. Heading number two on your outline is that the Bible encourages Christians to persevere. Okay, that's a summary taken from that phrase in verse four. Through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture. Last week we talked about the command really throughout the New Testament, the demand laid upon every Christian that we are to persevere to the end. That's the same Greek word as that word endure right there. Okay? That there is an expectation that we're not just flashing the pan Christians. That we trust Jesus and we continue following Him. We persevere on with Him. Now, perseverance is not so much a requirement of salvation and that you have to persevere to be saved as it is evidence that your saving faith in Jesus is genuine. So what do you mean? I mean that saving faith perseveres. When you, tr- when you repent and you trust Jesus in sincerity, that faith is going to be carried out until the very end. Why? Because it didn't start with you. Jesus is the author of our faith and He's the finisher of our faith. He completes the good work that He starts in us. And so this perseverance is just, it's just a manifestation and evidence that we are really Christians. Okay, But that verse tells us something about perseverance. Sometimes that word can sound like bootstrap, that we bootstrap it up and and, and who cares how we feel, we bootstrap it up and we go after Jesus no matter what, okay? That we white knuckle it and and, and bootstrap it. And, And that verse connects the word perseverance and endurance with the word encouragement. Do you know those things are connected in your life? That you're a, a created being designed by God and you persevere because you're encouraged. Do you know that? So therefore, if you want to persevere to the end, you need encouragement. It is essential for you. Okay? If you are discouraged, you won't go on. You're a created being. In that way, God designed you like that. So you need encouragement. And this verse tells us where you can find it. And it's through the Scriptures. You can find the encouragement that you need to persevere as a Christian from the written Word of God. From the written Word of God. Did you know that the Bible can do that? That you can be downcast and you can be fearful and it can embolden you. That it can lift your spirits. Did you know that it could do that? And this verse tells us something about how that happens, right? That lifting of the spirits, that encouragement that comes through the Scripture, verse 4 tells us that it comes through instruction. Now that's a strange thing, right? You mean that that life-changing encouragement 
that causes me to persevere to the very end comes through me learning something about the Bible? Okay, Have you made that connection in your life? Therefore, if that's true, what is the first thing that you need to do when discouragement hits you as a Christian? If encouragement comes through you learning something about Scripture, what is the first reaction that you need to go for when discouragement hits you, if you believe God's Word? It means that numero uno on your list is that God needs to teach me something right now from His Word. I need to be instructed right now because I'm encouraged. I need to be instructed from a written text, from the written Word of God. Do you know though, do you know most often that's the last thing we go for, right? We stand arm's length away of the very means that God will use to encourage us. And this passage lays it out crystal clear that it comes through us learning something, us knowing something about the Scriptures, And that word instruction or teaching, we're not talking about a cold, intellectual only. You sit down for 30 minutes, an hour, even two hours. And you just hammer out studying Scripture in a cold, intellectual way. That doesn't produce encouragement. That is a false knowledge of God. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you digging into the Bible in such a way that you walk away from the Bible with life-giving encouragement life-giving encouragement so the question is do you see that from this text do you see that the encouragement comes through the written word of god and then the very next question is do you experience this if this is true and it is is this your personal experience with the word of god that you come to the book that you come to the book with varying range of emotions Sometimes neutral, sometimes stone cold, just discouraged in whatever way that you come to the book and you walk away from the book encouraged that your God has taught you something and it's caused you to worship him or to walk in his ways that God has spoken to you through the word. Do you experience that? Is that your experience with the Bible as a Christian or are you settling for something less than that? This is for every believer that you can come to the book, not walk away with cold intellectual knowledge. You can walk away with encouragement, with encouragement. We're supposed to be coming to this book every day, coming to this book like a thirsty man going to the fountain. And so we, 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 we are thirsty and we want something to drink. And if you want something to drink, where do you go? You go where the water comes out, whether it's the well or the sink or the fountain. So we're thirsty and we want to meet with God. So we go to the book. We go to the fountain. And then this verse teaches us not only do we go when we get there, we actually drink deeply from this fountain of God's word. And we walk away from the word of God satisfied. That God has shown us something. Are you settling for something less than this in your daily relationship with the Bible? Do you know how common it is? Do you know how common it is to spend time with the Lord and then somebody poke you at, you know, two hours after you you read God's Word and you say, well, what would you see? Well, I don't know. Uh, What encouraged you? Uh, 
yeah, I mean, the other, uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, I saw this and this was encouraging. This is the battle that we're in. You're in a daily battle, not just to go, but to get something. Not just to read God's Word, but to take something away. Life-giving encouragement from the Word of God. And in order for this to happen, we have got to learn how to come to this book in the right way. If you come to it in the wrong way, you're not going to get the encouragement that it is designed to give you. You won't. So let's talk about what the right way is. What is the right way to come to the Scriptures? These are going to be some subpoints under heading two of your outline. Here's the first one I want to hit. You're not going to get encouragement from the Bible unless you're coming to the Bible to meet with God. Okay? If your sole aim to read the Scriptures every day is to check a list or to learn a few things or to study a book of Scripture, if that's all you're after, you're not going to drink deeply at this fountain. I want you to notice the similarities between verse 4 and verse 5 of Romans 15. Notice the relationship here. In verse 4, the encouragement and the comfort and the endurance come from Scripture. And then in the very next verse, without even breaking thought, God Himself, in verse 5, is called the God of endurance and encouragement. And so the question is, you're scratching your head. So where does it come from? Does it come from God or does it come from the Bible? The encouragement and the endurance I need. And that's a perfect question. That's, that's exactly what it lays out for you. It comes from God through His Word. Therefore, if we want to meet with God and receive this encouragement that He has for us, we go to the book to meet with Him. We go to the book to meet with Him. This is the exact error of the Pharisees in John 5, 39 and 40. Jesus tells that, that group of Pharisees that, that they come to the Scriptures... And they search them because in the Scriptures, they think that they have eternal life. In the very next verse, verse 40, Jesus tells them, Yet you refuse to come to Me. They bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me. They came to the Word, but not to the God of the Word. This is the warning for us. If this is how you're going to the Bible every day, this is a form of idolatry. We are supposed to draw near to God through His Word. Through His Word. This is the right approach. Subpoint so number two. You're not going to get encouragement from the Bible unless you learn to come to the Bible to hear an authoritative word from God. An authoritative word from God. And I'm coming off the phrase, what was written in, in verse 4 of Romans 15. Okay? That... Those writings that he's talking about in verse 4, those writings are the authoritative Word of God. They're authoritative. Why? Because they didn't come from man. The Bible is authoritative because it did not originate with man. It came from God. It came from God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19-21. through 21. Listen to this. We're going to spend some time here. And we have... The prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did men write the Bible? Did men write the Bible? Yes. With a qualifier, a massive one. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's Word is written by man, but it didn't originate with man. It came through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along there is a, there's a beautiful word picture to how God gave us this book. The word carried is, it's used in Acts 17 to describe a ship that's drifting along in the sea. I'll read verse, Acts 17, verse 14 and 15. Listen to this. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Nor'easter struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Same Greek word. Okay? Did the ship remain a ship when it, when it was in the midst of that storm? Yes. It was still a ship. Okay? It didn't lose its identity as a ship. It was still a ship. But what it did lose is it lost control of its destination. It was at the mercy of the storm. The wind drove that ship wherever the wind willed to drive that ship. That is a beautiful picture of how God gave us the Bible. The men that wrote it, did they cease to be human beings? No. Did they cease to lose their personality? No. They could still think. They use unique vocabulary and patterns of thought. They have a unique way of describing things. They're still men. But what they did lose is they lost control of the ultimate outcome of the things that they were writing. They were carried along in the Holy Spirit. That's how the Word of God came to us. God's Word came to us through men, through holy men being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. God gave us the Bible by miracle. This is exactly what Jesus believed about Scripture. The resurrected, sinless God-man, has. we have written records of His doctrine of Scripture, of what He thought about the Bible. And this is exactly what He believed. This is exactly what He believed. Jesus affirmed that God is the author of Scripture. Listen to Mark 12, verse 36. Jesus says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Do you catch that? That's, that? Jesus just quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. And if you were to ask Him, if you were to ask the Lord Jesus, Jesus, who wrote Psalm 110? He would say, David and the Holy Spirit. David wrote it on the paper, but it came through the Holy Spirit. Jesus believed this. This is not some wacko, crazy doctrine. This is what the Son of God taught us to believe about the Bible. It is the Word of God, the authoritative Word of God. Jesus affirms the inerrancy of Scripture. Listen to John 10. In John 10 verse 35, Jesus says this about the Bible. It's one of my favorite descriptions in the entire Word of God. He says, Scripture cannot be broken. 
And you ask Him that question. Jesus, can Scripture be broken? And He says, no, never. It cannot be. It is indestructible. It is inerrant. That is what the resurrected, sinless God-man believed about Scripture. And there's something going on in our generation, and this is just going to pick up steam, that so-called biblical scholars, they, they, they go to places in God's Word, and either miracles or narratives that are way out of the norm, and they start talking about, this is a bit of mythology that has worked its way in to the, to the writings. And God's Word, the Bible is not so much the inerrant Word of God, but there is some of God's Word in here, and we have to search out what's God's Word and what's not. Jesus did the exact opposite of that. They are in direct contradiction to how Jesus handled Scripture. Listen to this. Some of the stories that they attack, some of the, the, the Old Testament uh, narratives that they attack, these are the very stories that Jesus affirms. Okay, so you're about to, I'm going to give you three examples. And Jesus believed that these really happened. That these really happen. And you just be confronted with this. When you, I even heard from a brother in this church this week, reading through Genesis about these things that, that for a long time, if you pressed him, he would say, well, you know, I, I wouldn't have said that happened, but then I read this and, and I believe it now. And so I want, to, I want you to be confronted with this. In Matthew 12, Jesus refers to the, to the story about the prophet Jonah being swallowed by a whale. Do you believe that that really happened? Do you believe that that's a, a, a bit of mythology in a children's story? Or do you believe that a whale swallowed that prophet? And he spent time alive inside that fish. Do you believe that? Jesus did. He quoted it in Matthew Chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, you can go read that. He believed that that really happened, that that was real history. What about the story of the global flood of Noah? Global flood of Noah that the God of Scripture punishes, pours out a cataclysmic judgment in all the world, and He kills every sinner on planet earth except for eight people. Covers the globe with water and drowns sinners. All across planet earth. Do you believe that that really happened? Do you believe that that is real history? Jesus did. And he quotes it. In Matthew 24 verse 38. You can go read that. Or some of us are reading through a similar reading plan of the Bible. We've been coming through Genesis the past couple of weeks. And not even a few days ago. We're reading the story about God judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that story, as God is pouring out the judgment, He gives a command that they're not to look back once they leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And then many of you have heard this many times, right? They're leaving and Lot's wife looks back and what does Genesis say says happens to her? She becomes a pillar of salt. Do you believe that that literally really happened? Or do you believe that that's some kind of weird symbolic thing? Do you believe that she looked back and God made her salt in a moment? Do you believe that? Jesus did. He believed that. He believed that story and He rooted it in real history. You can go read it for yourself in Luke 17 verse 32. He quotes Lot's wife and draws a command to his church for us that we are to remember what happened to this woman. That we are to remember her. So here's the point, okay? 
We have an authoritative text in our hands. We have the words from God, not the words of men. We have the inerrant word of God. Everything in the book is from His mouth. How do we know that? Because Jesus just told us that. You're trusting Him to save you throughout eternity and, and to bear your punishment in your place. Are you going to trust what He says about the Bible? He is smarter than you. He is smarter than you. You are not more enlightened than the sinless Son of God. And He told us how to approach the Scriptures. If we don't come to the Bible like this, we will not receive what it is designed to give us. And you say, what do you mean by that? If we draw near to God through His Word, and there is a casualness about the way that we're coming to this book, that we take this holy book and we make it common... This book doesn't yield its fruit to that approach. You can't come to the book and, and, and make it unlock its glory to you. It will not open itself to mockers, to ones who treat the holy book in a common way. God does promise blessing to the ones who come to bow down to the authoritative word of God. That we draw near to God on a daily basis and we humble ourselves. And we come with, 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 with low thoughts of ourselves that, Lord, I don't know the right way to go. Teach me. Teach me your ways. Lord, instruct me. Shape the way that I think. Shape my worldview. And we come to God's word to bow down and submit to it. These are the types of people that receive from the Bible what it was meant to give. Listen to Isaiah 66 verse 2. 66 verse 2. This is the one. This is the one to whom I will look. This is the one that God looks to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Who trembles at my word. That's exactly the right response when you understand the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture rightly. You can talk about everything that I just laid out about the Bible is from God and not from man. And you can know those like facts on a piece of paper. But you don't know it as you should until that makes you tremble in His presence that the God of glory has revealed Himself to us in this book. That we can crack the book and we can hear the voice of the King of glory personally addressing us. And what does it make us want to do? It makes us want to tremble at what God says. Come and bow to the book. Under the book. To get under the words of our King and our God. That's the approach. You're not going to get what you need to get from the Scriptures unless you come to it in that way. It is the Word of God, the authoritative Word of God. Last sub-point. You're not going to get encouragement from the Bible unless you come to the Bible to hear a relevant word for the modern world. A relevant word for the modern world. And I'm getting that from verse 4 where it says... That whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. For our instruction. So scripture, in this verse, it is both a historical text written beforehand. And it is a living word that is written way back here, but it's for us now. So it talks about the then and the there. But it's a living word that also talks about the here and the now. And you have to come to Scripture in the way that it was designed to be read and studied. It is a living word. 
You do not study the Bible like you study history. It is history and there is a measure of that. But you study it with this expectation that God the Holy Spirit is going to pierce you with something from His Word that it's for today. So what this means is that God continues to speak through what He has already spoken. It is the living Word of God. It is the living Word of God and you have to approach it like this. If you have a Bible in your hand this morning, over two-thirds of that book is what we call the Old Testament. And there are some really unfortunate views towards the Old Testament in our culture, in our church culture. And I've heard many people wrongly say things like, whether it's straightforward or in a roundabout way, they believe that the Old Testament is mainly for Jews, and the main stuff that we need is now in the New Testament, that last little sliver of the book that you hold in your hand. Well, look at the text. What does the Bible say? What does it say about himself? In Romans chapter 15, Paul is mainly writing to Gentile Christians. Not writing to Jews. Okay, In Romans 15, he is mainly writing to Gentile Christians. And the rest of the New Testament doesn't even exist yet. It is in process. It is coming out. Okay, We're in process in Romans 15. So what does he say to those Gentile Christians about these Jewish, supposedly Jewish texts? What does he say to them? He says every word, whatever was written in former days, from Genesis to Malachi, every single word is for you. Every single word is for our instruction. The entire Bible is for you. You have to go to the Bible with that mindset. This is God's word to me. It's a living word now. It's a living word now. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Listen to this. It says, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. These stories that you read about were written down for us to instruct us. And what that verse teaches, 1 Corinthians 10 11, is that the Bible is profitable. The entire Bible is profitable to the end of the ages. It's profitable to the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. So the book that you have in your hand is a relevant, living, breathing word of God until the very end. It never loses that. One of the attributes of Scripture, and this is not talked about enough, is that it's God-breathed and profitable. It is profitable by nature. It is relevant to your life. And we have to learn to come to the book like this. And we have to be very careful about views creeping in in our life that insult the author of Scripture. That when we talk about things like Numbers or, or, or Leviticus or Deuteronomy or the prophet Obadiah or these places in Scripture, and we th say things about, yeah, it's so dry, I'm just not getting much. Well, that might be true that you're not getting much, but do you hate that? Do you hate that you're missing what God has for you in all of Scripture? So you have to be careful about language and mindsets like that that insult the God who wrote the Bible. Genesis to Revelation is for us. It is for us. It is for us. It's a living word to us. Now, every one of us 
knows what it's like to read the scriptures and at some level to miss the point. Okay, that we're there and we're whether we're studying or memorizing something or reading something that we walk away from it and we just missed it. You know, whether we learned something that was flat out wrong, that's that's happened. You know, where I, I thought it said A, but it actually is B. It's actually the exact opposite of what you thought. That's happened to us. And we've come away from Scripture unmoved before. That we have not experienced everything that Romans 15.4 just laid out for us. So the question is, what are we missing? What are we missing when that happens? And here's what I think it is. If I were to isolate one thing more than anything else when that is happening in our life, is I think that we're missing the, the discipline of meditating on the Word of God. And what I mean when I say meditating, I mean more than reading. I mean you read, and then there comes a moment where the Holy Spirit draws your attention to a certain verse, to a certain word, to a certain example. And then it becomes this prayerful lingering over the text of Scripture where God the Holy Spirit begins to take that inspired word and light it up for us in our modern world. That comes to us through meditation. That's what we're missing. And so this is what I want to encourage us toward. Listen to this Puritan quote. This is a guy named Thomas Watson. Listen to what he says about meditation. He says, The reason we come away so cold from reading the Word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. That's why we come away from the Bible cold. That we are in such a hurry that we are running the living, breathing Word of God through our minds at such a rapid pace that it's not soaking in. It's not hitting us. It's like running water through a pipe. It's doing nothing other than traveling through our minds. God's Word is designed to soak in us, to impact us. So, I think He's right because I've personally experienced this many times. I have failed to warm myself at the fires of meditation in God's Word. And I have come away many times in my life. Surely you know what this is like. Cold to God. Because I didn't linger over His Word. And so I want to push. I want to encourage that if you focus on anything as far as practical today, aim here to daily meditate on the Word of God. This was a quote on Desiring God this week, and I thought this was encouraging. He says, It's a dangerous pattern for a Christian to read God's Word consistently without having their heart stirred by what they have read. As much as it is in your power, strive not to walk away from God's Word without having at least one truth move your affections. If you finish your reading for the day and nothing has moved you, pray and ask God to show you one little thing from what you have read that might have an impact on your affections. Stop. Pray over that truth or that example. Slow down enough for it to convict you or to it, for to it to encourage you or to correct you or to strengthen your hope in God. This is how the Bible demands to be treated. You can't treat it like fast food restaurant, right? That you come in and you're blazing through and check it off and I'm done. The Holy Spirit, He doesn't, he doesn't yield its fruit to that approach, right? We have to linger over God's Word. And how awesome is that? That God demands that we linger with Him. Can you imagine anything better? In His presence is fullness of joy. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
And so when we hear this command to meditate on the Word of God, you ought to hear that like my four-year-old son hearing me command him, Ethan, go get that cotton candy off the table and I want you to eat every bit of it. And he says, uh, okay, Daddy, I, I think I'll do that. That's, that's exciting obedience, joyful obedience to the imperatives of Scripture. This is what we want to go after. Daily experience of lingering over God's Word. Our last heading this morning is, is the last part of verse 4. The Bible is designed to produce abounding hope in Jesus Christ. Abounding hope in Jesus Christ. I love that. That word hope... And, and the way that this text is laid out, the Bible takes you past encouragement. Encouragement is that moment, these little slivers of time where your face is lifted. And the Bible does that, but it takes you past that. And it can take you into this state of mind, this settled state of your mind and your heart called hope. This is what the Bible can do in your life. Now, we need to qualify this because when the world says hope, You've heard this before probably. It's, it's a wish. It's a wishful thinking of, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I really hope I get an A on my test next week. There's, a, there's an element of wish to it. But the biblical word of hope is the exact opposite. In the biblical sense, the word hope is grounded in certainty. It's not wishful thinking. You see that in Hebrews 6. This word, hope, this certainty... It's, it's, it is a strong word. And, and I want you to have high exalted thoughts of the strength of this hope that the Scripture can produce in you. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, listen to how this word is used. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Do you see how strong that is? Eager expectation and hope that something ain't going to happen. Do you see that? So here's what God's Word wants to produce in you. Something of strength. Something of certainty. Something to where you have rooted in you an eager expectation. And the Bible wants to do that in your life. The Bible is able to do that in your life. It is able to give you that hope through the encouragement that it offers. In verse 12 of Romans 15, we find out where does this hope terminate? It's, 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 aim, it's like an arrow aimed to a target, and where does it hit? What is the object of the hope that the Bible gives us? Listen to verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And then it says, In him will the Gentiles hope. So God desires to produce a settled state of mind in your life. A certainty, a strong certainty, a strong eager expectation of you that terminates in Jesus Christ. That stuff busts loose in your life and you have this anchor of the soul that you are rooted in your God. Rooted in your God. Biblically, one more thing to mention here. This hope is always future oriented and that's important. This is actually one of the differences between the word hope and the word faith in Scripture. Faith can look both ways. You can believe something has happened, or you can believe something will happen. It can, it can gaze both, front and back. The word hope, by definition, biblically, is always future-oriented. It always looks forward. So this is something specific that the Bible is holding out for us. Listen to this future-oriented in Romans 8, verse 24. 
In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's always future oriented. You can't hope in something that you already have. You hope in something that is yet to come. And this is very important for every believer in this room. Every believer in this room. It is very important for you to have a glorious, optimistic outlook to the future. Okay? And somebody says, well, what do you think about this world? What do you think is going to happen in this world? And some people are just extremely pessimistic about that, right? And, you know, things are going to go from bad to worse and, and sin to sin. I believe that. But I'm talking about a thousand years after that. I'm talking about a million years after that. What comes after that? Is there anything in you that is encouraged because you know how eternity unfolds? Do you see that? This is the hope that you need. And this is the hope that the Bible produces in us. This future-oriented gaze. It is important. This is what helps us jump from the present to the future. How do you stay encouraged when you, when, when you get the news that you have terminal cancer? Because something in you is focusing not just on the here and now, but you have a gaze not just to the present, but into the future. Okay, Not just present sufferings, but you are convinced in Christ Jesus of future glory with Christ. That is called hope. And do you know that changes the way that you live in this world? When you have an eager expectation that everything that God has promised you in Jesus is going to be yours. It changes the way you live in the here and now. So the question is this. Is your daily relationship with Scripture producing this in your life? Is this happening? You see how it unfolds? You see what the Bible promises? Are you going to get this? Are you experiencing the hope that the Scriptures offer you on a daily basis? Because you know what I'm hearing a lot. Okay? And, and you might be like me. Of, how you doing? I'm struggling. How you doing, man? I'm just cold to the Lord. How you doing, brother? I'm just so distracted right now with work. How you doing? With the mission of God. Well, you know, I remember times where I used to pursue the mission of God. Well, how are you doing? And it's discouragement and discouragement and discouragement. And the question that I want you to think about this morning is, where is the other side of that coin? We know that we struggle at times, but where are the times in your life to where that's not the case? To where you draw near to the Word of God and you are discouraged and you walk away triumphantly encouraged that my God is for me. Is this happening in your life? This is your birthright. This is the gift of grace that Jesus has given you with this book. You can be encouraged. You can be encouraged. But it doesn't come in an automatic download into your life, right? It comes through the Scriptures. And you have to learn to go to them. You have to learn to go to them in the way that they were intended to be studied and to be read. Is your normal experience to walk away from God's Word with reminders of truths about eternal glory? You say, what do you mean? You're going to work Tuesday and you walk out of the door... And you're driving and you say, Lord, I live and I move and I breathe in this world. But I praise you, Lord Jesus, that there's another world coming. A world where righteousness dwells. And many times in my life, 
I have failed you and I have I hate my sin. But Lord Jesus, I praise your holy name that this new world is going to be inaugurated with a resurrection from the dead. That there's an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And in that day, every Christian is going to be raised from the dead, completely sinless forever. That for the first time in your entire existence, you will be able to worship Jesus Christ with zero sin. Zero sin. No selfishness, no distorted thoughts of God. You will behold the face of your God. Do you understand this? In in, in the book of Revelation, this God of glory, He replaces the sun. He replaces the sun. You go outside on a normal day and you look at the sun and it will burn your eyeballs out and you can't even see. And that's just the shadow that points to the glory of God. And He's coming in this new heavens and this new earth and His glory is going to brighten the entire creation. There's not going to be a sun in the new heavens and the new earth. This glorious God, and at the same time that He's lighting the whole world up with His glory, we are beholding His glorious face forever. Does this change the way that you live? That forever into eternity, He is your God, and you and we are His people. Anything like that happen, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what you can go into your bedroom and find on Wednesday morning of this week. Just the tip of the iceberg of the encouragement that comes to us through Scripture. Many times in my life I've experienced this. And Psalm 94, it says it in a, in a, in a, in a simple, clean way. Psalm 94, 19 says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. When the cares of my heart are many, your constella- consolations cheer my soul. Has that ever happened to you? You're down and God lifts up your face through the book, through the Word. I want to give a couple of quick examples of how this works. I want to put some flesh on this, okay? And I'm going to use examples from the Old Testament because I want us to have a glorious view of over two-thirds of your Bible. So turn this morning to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. How does this hope come from the Scriptures? I'm giving you examples of encouragement that has come to me in my daily reading of the Bible. How normal is that? Daily patterns of seeking God and God throws the lights on. I'm going to talk to you about a man named Jashobim and Benaiah. Anybody want to take a stab before we go? And that's my point. I want to show you that obscure places in the Word of God are filled with power to encourage us. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. He's a mighty man of David. In verse 11 we meet Jashobim. Let's read it. This is an account of David's mighty men. Jashobim, a Hakmonite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. One man killed 300 people at one time. And it just falls like normal in the middle of that genealogy. You're like, what? What? Almost three times of the amount of people in this room and He took them all out. Every one of them. One against 300. And He didn't have a machine gun. Right? He handled business against 300 people at one time. And how does that encourage me? I'm reading through that. And I'm thinking, you know what? He's a man. That is a man. That is not a pre-incarnate Christ doing that. That is God coming upon a man with a nature like ours. 
encourages me. What about verse 22? This is a man named Benaiah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Anybody done that this week? <laughs> right? That really happened. That this man goes down into a pit with a devouring beast and he strikes down the beast. The beast doesn't master him. He strikes down the lion. Same example, right? That is a man with a nature like ours. How is that encouraging to me? Because I'm reading that and I'm thinking, Lord, you're showing us in your word. You're showing us the exceeding greatness of your power to those who believe. You're showing us what can happen when your Holy Spirit comes upon us. And things that can't be explained by the strength of man. And it encourages me because I know what it's like to be surrounded by enemies of my soul, right? Or I know what it's like. There are lines lurking in my life. Might not be a literal line and definitely not in a pit on a snowy day, okay? But 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you know what God spoke to me when I read that, read that verse, meditating over that verse, is that I don't have to roll over and take it. Do you understand that? When the enemies of God unleash their attacks against the people of God, God the Holy Spirit can come upon us and we can rout the enemy in the strength of our God. It is encouraging, right? We read stories like that. It encourages us. But even on another level, this is, this is encouraging to me because every hero in Scripture is a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one. That some inspiring deed, some heroic act, is just a shadow of what He did for us. On His cross and in His resurrection, on His cross... He devours and destroys the ultimate enemy, Satan himself. He destroys him on his cross. And then three days later, he blasts through death and he swallows death with his glorious resurrection. And so if you're fired up this morning about a man going into a pit and slaying a lion, how, how much does that encourage you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and swallowed death? Makes me want to worship Him. I come away from this time in God's Word and I want to worship my God. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. What about Genesis 22? I'm hustling. Genesis 22. This is the story of Abraham. Many of us read this this past week. Genesis 22. Abraham is given the command that he is to go to the land of Moriah. The land of Moriah. And God gives him the command that in the, on the mountain that God's going to show him that Abraham is to sacrifice the promised son, Isaac, the one, the one that God promised was going to bless the nations that Abraham is to offer him as a sacrifice on that mountain. The Bible calls this a test of faith, that, that God is testing Abraham to see if Abraham's going to hold anything back from him. And I want you to imagine that. God promises you a promised one. Everything in your life has been building up to this. And then he says, kill him. What would you do? The Bible says that the next morning, Abraham gets up and he goes in obedience to the place where God had led him to go. Immediately, he is moving out to obey his God, withholding nothing back from his God. 
And the Bible says that he gets to the point, he is so convinced that, that even if he kills him, that God is, is able to raise him from the dead, that he literally holds the knife up and he is about to stab it into the body of the promised son. Do you, do you get that? Is, that? is that landing on you at all? That, that, that there is nothing in this man's life that he is holding back from his God. Nothing is more important for Abraham than his God. Nothing held back. Is that convicting to you? Convicting to you that God, that nothing can be held back from God. Is that encouraging to you? That God can move you to the same place. That you are cut from the same mold as Abraham. Regenerated by the same Holy Spirit. But there's something more in the story. This happens. The angel stops Abraham from killing his son. And many of you know this. And then God provides a lamb that dies in, instead of, instead of, a substitute that dies instead of Isaac, the promised one. And God provides the substitute that dies in the place of Isaac. This is a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus. That a lamb will die in the place of sinners. Even more than that. I wept when God showed me this in His Word. It, it, it strengthened me many times when God showed me this in His Word. The place where this happens, where this exchange happens, the knife lifted, the angel stops, the, the lamb being slaughtered instead of Isaac. In verse 14 of Genesis 22, Abram called the name of that place, the Lord will provide so this place had a name. They walked away from this place and he named that place. That place over there, the Lord's going to provide. And then look, and, and, and even to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So other people began to walk around that mountain in Moriah. And they say, you see that mountain right there? On that mountain, it's going to be provided by God. God will provide. Then turn your Bible to Second Chronicles chapter 3. Verse 1. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Began to build the house of the Lord. That is the temple in Jerusalem. That was still rebuilt, yes, but still standing in the day of Jesus. He begins to build this temple in Jerusalem. And out of everywhere on planet earth, where does that temple fly up? Look. On Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. You are kidding me. You are kidding me. Thousands of years separate this. And out of everywhere, out of everywhere that the temple could be built, it is built on Mount Moriah, the same exact place where this lamb was slaughtered in, in place of Isaac. And then what happens at this temple? Blood flies everywhere at this temple for thousands of years. There is sacrifice after sacrifice that is offered for the forgiveness of sins. In this temple, in this holy place where God has chosen to dwell. And every one of those sacrifices is just a shadow of the, one, the real one that's coming. So you fast forward another thousand years or so. In God's word. And then what happens? John 1.29 happens. Where John the Baptist shouts out. Behold the Lamb of God. That takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus dies as the true sacrifice, the only sacrifice that can ever take away sin. And out of every city on planet earth that the Son of God gave His life, where did He give it? And the city that was built on this mountain, named on that mountain right there, that one the Lord's going to provide. And I hit my face that morning and I began to worship God. Lord, look what you did. For thousands of years, you told humanity what you were going to do. Over and over and over again, that's where it's going down. That's where I'm going to provide for, for atonement for sin. Our God knows the end from the beginning. Is that encouraging to you? These, these daily trips into the Word of God and triumphantly encouraged that our God knows the end from the beginning. There is encouragement waiting for you in God's Word. And I'll leave you with this commandment. 2 Peter 1.19 And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. title of the message is The Bible Can Blast Away Discouragement. 2 Peter 1.19 tells us that Scripture is a light that can arise in your heart and blast away darkness. It is powerful to this end. Let's pray. God, we pray, Lord, that You would encourage us today from Your Word. God, we pray that You would deepen our affections, Lord. God, cause us to tremble. Lord, make us Like what Isaiah talked about. Make us ones who tremble at your word. Do it in the midst of a comfortable, affluent Western culture. God, you are able to make us tremblers, to make us, to increase our fear of you and our reverence of you, Lord. God, I pray that you would do it in this church. God, let us be a people that love your word, that love to draw near to you in the means through which you have appointed. God, I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters today. God, I pray that you would lift up the downcast today, that you would come against ingrained patterns in some lives, Lord, and that you would blast through that darkness, Lord, and that you would pierce them with your light. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.